This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey everyone, welcome to Pop Culture Confidential, a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Thanks so much for joining me. So I probably first encountered my guest this week through his acting career on shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Mad Men, and Gilmore Girls. Danny Strong is also an Emmy Award-winning screenwriter and producer. He's written political dramas like Game Change and Recount. And now he's taken on the origins and devastation of the opioid epidemic in the U.S. and how one company, Purdue Pharma, triggered the worst drug epidemic in American history. Dopesick is a limited series created by Strong who also writes and directs on the series, based on the book by Beth Macy. And I got to talk to Danny Strong as part of a Disney Plus launch event. Dopesick is told from various perspectives. Michael Keaton plays a small-town doctor pushed to prescribe the drug. Caitlin Deaver is a young coal miner who starts taking Oxycontin to deal with the pain she's gotten from an injury on the job. Peter Sarsgaard plays a U.S. attorney, and Michael Stuhlbarg plays the pharmaceutical billionaire Richard Sackler. People all across this great nation are in pain. They have hard lives. Are you still sore? I can't work here no more. I'll be all right. And we have the cure. This new miracle drug, OxyContin. You will be the largest sales force in pharmaceutical history. Make your doctors feel special. Take them to expensive dinners. Bribe the receptionist with a mani-pedi. Whatever it takes to win their trust. Your most effective talking point are these magic words. Less than 1% of people get addicted to Oxycontin. That's not possible. Danny Strong, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for chatting with me about the show. So you've said, and I read, that your goal with this show was to give Purdue and the Sacklers the trial that they never got. So how did Purdue and the Sackler family spark the opioid epidemic? Yeah, they sparked the opioid epidemic, and then they poured gasoline on it, and then they poured more and more gasoline on it for decades. They are uh, completely responsible for it morally, um, and uh, the fact that they have gotten away with it uh, is, is there are millions of people in the United States that feel that justice has not been served. So uh, when I started researching exactly what happened because all I basically knew was uh, they will you know they said it was less addictive or they lied to doctors it's all sort of very vague when you uh just have heard the basic facts of the story but when you start to dive into it and you see the extent that they lied misled manipulated over and over and over again that no matter what type of study news story petition uh investigation came their way 
uh, and they would never buckle. And in fact, they would just maneuver straight through it and then they would sell even harder. Uh, the story is completely shocking, way more so than I imagined what it could be, uh, specifically when you get into the actual uh, things they lied about and the way that they lied about it. It's quite devious. Right. At this point, 600,000 Americans um, deaths through this epidemic. And one of the things they did was specifically target these small towns like coal country that we see in your show, residents of a small Virginia mountain town devastated by the drug. Why did they do that? So that was their in their phase one of launching the drug Oxycontin. They began in uh, areas uh, in rural Maine, um, in uh, Western Virginia and Eastern Kentucky. And these were labor intensive areas, uh, uh, mining, logging and farming communities in which people just got hurt uh, on the job a lot. And there was a particularly high rate of prescribing painkillers in these areas. Uh, these were also areas that were prone to pill abuse because quote, big city drug dealers didn't often come to these areas because they were so remote. So there also was a, a big history of prescription pill abuse in these areas as well, which I think might have also been appealing uh, to, to marketing a highly addictive drug as non-addictive. So, but primarily it was because um, this was where people were using uh, painkillers more often because of their, the jobs they had. Just to, to be clear, because you were talking about they got the FDA to actually help them with a label that said that it was less, only 1% got addicted to the drug, right? Yeah, so the phrase uh, less than 1% uh, uh, get addicted to OxyContin, that's the big lie of, of OxyContin. That's, that's the lie that is, that is the original sin, uh, but, but there will be many, many more sins that come after that. Uh, and what aided them in that lie was that the FDA uh, granted them this highly unusual warning label uh, that had never been given a class two narcotic before, which essentially said that this drug is less addictive than other uh, opioids. Now, there were no studies that, show, that showed that was to be the case, uh, but nonetheless, the, the FDA granted them this wording. Then 18 months later, the guy who granted them the wording leaves his job and goes to work for Purdue Pharma. Mm -hmm. So the corruption, uh, the appearance of corruption is, is so blatant that I think a six-year-old could, yeah. could tell you, oh, that doesn't sound right. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's the fact that this warning label sparked everything. And then, then, then the guy who uh, approved the wording uh, goes to work for them. And I think that there is a strong case to be made that he didn't just um, grant the wording, but in fact, he wrote it himself. For himself. Them. And yeah. he was asked in a deposition if he did write it, and he responded, I might have. Okay. You're no stranger to writing real people, powerful people in, in several of your projects. In terms of the process of writing Richard Sackler, what did you find were his motivations? Well, that is, was one of the biggest mysteries to me uh, in this project is what is motivating Richard Sackler? And you could say greed. That seems to be the most obvious motivation. However, he was wealthy before OxyContin existed. He grew up in a very, very wealthy family. Um, so I felt there had to be more than just greed, that there had to be more that was driving him. 
And there's a decent amount written on him at the time, even more so now. Um, but it was it was a mystery for me. I went on a deep dive. I interviewed several people that had worked at Purdue, people that knew him. Uh, and then I actually went to this uh, extreme extent that I've never done on any project before. I did um, a mock therapy session with a therapist in which I played Richard Sackler in the therapy session to see if I could just gain more insight into the psychological state. Uh, and I think through the totality of this, uh, I was able to come up with what feels to me uh, like very well what, what could have been uh, driving him beyond just greed. And what was that? Well, you have to see the show. Of course. I can't just give it all away. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Um, there was an ongoing, and I mean, this is an ongoing deal with this. So how did this impact the production? It's an ongoing trial. It's an ongoing investigation into the family. Pretty fascinating. So the show ends in 2007. So there is a self-contained element to the story we have. Um, however, the investigation never ended because new facts kept coming up all the time. New information would be released. New books would come out. Multiple books came out during the process of, of, um, of writing and shooting the show. Uh, and, then, and then in the course of our interviews, Beth Macy, who wrote the book Dope Sick, and I, we did many interviews together. We did them separately. People would leak us documents. We, we had a Justice Department memo leaked to us, uh, which was incredibly helpful. So, so it kept, um, the, the, the information kept coming and I was able to, at times, take new explosive information and put it in a scene that we were shooting the next day. So, so I was constantly tweaking the script as we went uh, because of all this new data that, that kept unfolding. It sounds like you're writing together with Beth and the others almost as akin to investigative reporting while you were doing it. Well, that, that was absolutely an element of it. Now, we were fortunate that there had been so many books that had come out. There had been five books, one wonderful book, Pharma by Gerald Posner and um, um, Empire of Pain. Just there's, there's, there's a ton of great books written on the subject. And uh, so they were filled with, with helpful information. But, uh, but yeah, the, this, this, the investigative part didn't stop. I'm Anne-Marie Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. And going after or researching so deeply as you guys did to pharmaceuticals and these powerful, powerful people, did you ever get any pushback from anyone while you were doing it? Yeah. Yeah, there yeah? was some. Uh, there, uh, we were getting pushback from, um, from uh, elements in the Sackler family. Uh, really? we would, we would hear from lawyers periodically and, uh, there would be stuff online, uh, these sort of attacks online. I remember there was one saying how the, the story is all fake and all a lie. And I hadn't written it yet. I'm like, wow, you are, you're, you, 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 you know, what's happening before this is even on paper. That's pretty, that's a pretty stunning. So none of it ever, um, well, it sounds like you were being, watched oh, or <laughs> harassed we were just yeah, being harassed, yeah. right and um i i felt like those some of the online harassment 
it felt to me, and I don't know if this is true, but it felt to me like it was coming from Purdue or the Sackler family using fake grassroots organizations. Or, you know, it's it, to be honest with you, the first one I saw was this attack ad with me and Beth Macy and Barry Levinson with devil horns. And I, my, the Malcolm Gladwell blink response to it was like, oh, that's from Purdue. And like I said, I can't say 100% that that was the case, but it always felt that way to me. Uh, and then their, their pushback from their lawyer, I always found pretty absurd, to be honest with you, because they come from the argument that they have zero responsibility for anything that happened. So, so they, they try to prove that by, by you know, uh, saying our grammar's incorrect. So obviously they have no culpability in the opioid crisis. I mean, it would be that sort of, oh, that wow. sort of minutia that they use to discredit um, or try to discredit you know, the story or people involved with the story. What do you believe are the long-term consequences for the people in the towns most affected and devastated by this epidemic? Yeah, the long-term consequences are, I don't even know if you can calculate them. I mean, particularly with the lives lost or the people that just lost years of their life or have still are still lost in opioid use disorder. Um, and then their family members and their friends and their loved ones and the, the devastation that's caused them. But part of what we do in the show is um, we talk about therapies um, and particularly in the last two episodes, uh, to show that there is a path forward, that in fact, addiction isn't because someone is, quote, a loser or a junkie that wants to get high. In many cases, it's someone who has a disease, that, it, that it's a disease and that there should be some compassionate understanding of what the person is going through. Uh, and then simultaneously, that can lead, that compassionate understanding can lead to treatments that actually work there are some really effective treatments for opioid use disorder, and you could go on and start to have a much more normal life than your existence, um, uh, stealing from loved ones and, and living under a bridge because all your money has gone towards uh, getting drugs, which if you don't get them, you feel like you're going to die, which is what the phrase dope sick means, that feeling uh, of immense pain you go through. Um, when you're when you're in clinical need of your next fix. So so what the show is hoping to do is to uh, be the beginning of charting a path forward um, for people and for the country so that maybe we could even try to turn a corner on this crisis. And you see any long term consequences for the Sacklers? Well, I think the biggest long term consequence that I'm 99 uh, percent confidence of is that they will live in infamy for the rest of their lives, that they are villains. They are American villains, unlike any I could possibly think of. You know, the only other American villains are partisan villains that people in each party view on the other side. These are, these are collective American villains um, that everyone, it's the only bipartisan thing in the United States at this point. Yeah, they were called evil in Congress even, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, they, they were, a few of them had to testify before Congress and a congressman said, I don't know of a, a family in America that's more evil than yours. I mean, what a what an unbelievable thing to for for, for uh, someone in the U.S. Congress to say to a witness testifying. Right. Um, so so that for sure is, and I'm I'd be curious to know if it if it means anything to them, if they're if they're devastated, humiliated, feel shamed, um, or are they just happy they've got the money and don't care? Um, I think. What's some your of them feeling about that? After researching them this immensely, do you have a feeling if they have any sort of moral 
compass? Uh, based on texts that have come out um, in discovery um, and their public statements, I think that there are, uh, many of them believe they're the victims. And, and I think that, that Richard Sackler very well views, it's very possible he views himself that he's the victim in all this uh, and that he did nothing wrong. I do think there are some that, that are, there's so many of them too. It's, you know, we use the, the, they have the phrase, the Sacklers, but it was really a very small group of them that actually ran this company uh, and mm -hmm. worked, on, worked on this drug, you know, maybe six or seven of them. Uh, I'm sure the ones that profit from it that had nothing to do with it, um, I'd be, you know, it's, it's such a, or, or the, the, the grand, the children, right. Who are, who, who get attacked. But, um, I, I would think that they feel guilt, but who knows, maybe they, I, I, it's, it's just speculation. So I just don't really know. So I only have a few minutes left. I wanted to ask you about, well, Michael Keaton, who does a tremendous job in this series is Dr. Samuel Phoenix. Um, he's also a producer on the show. I understand that it was a very personal project for him. Tell me, tell me why. Well, um, when I heard Michael Keaton was interested after we offered him the role, I was surprised because I never thought we'd be able to get him because uh, it's an ensemble show. It's not the lead part, although probably the, the most central character in the ensemble is his part. Um, and then I found out that his uh, nephew had passed away from an overdose. Um, so, so this was extremely personal to him. And you look at his body of work, particularly in the last five or six years, and he clearly likes to work on true stories, true stories that have something important to say, a spotlight worth his new movie. Um, so, so I wasn't completely surprised that he took to the, to the material and subject matter, but yeah, I think his personal connection to it is ultimately what made him want to do it. Yeah, speaking of that, you've really broadened the scope here. We talked about, you know, you, you researched the Sacklers, um, but tell me a little bit about the other storylines that you have and who you chose to follow. Yeah, so um, kind of the spine of the story and what ultimately made me think there could be a, a mainstream piece of storytelling here. They could not be just, that, that it could be more than a tragic story of addiction. And we certainly cover that but that there could be something else that could be maybe even exciting for an audience was when I read that there was uh, a case that a U.S. attorney brought and that prosecutors brought. And I thought, oh, well, if there was a case, that means there was an investigation. Uh, and then I read about a DEA agent who was actively targeting Purdue. And I thought, well, that could be quite an exciting story too. And then also give us a ton of information about uh, the rampant criminal behavior that took place within Purdue Pharma. So those are two other major storylines, along with um, the, the, the story, the powerful addiction story that we tell. And then we have a, a fourth story, which is the world inside Purdue Pharma, in which we see all this criminal behavior. We see this dysfunctional family. We see uh, uh, Richard Sackler's motivation. Um, and, and that story kind of has its own tone. Uh, and it's, it's, it has an, a sort of an unusual tone to it as well. So I thought combining all these different stories together, you could have a sort of a multi-layered, multi-tone piece that could be uh, hopefully quite powerful and, and at times even quite exciting. You're working with the great Barry Levinson. Tell me what he brought to this project and why um, you wanted to work with him. Yeah, well, I wanted to work with Barry because he's one of my heroes as a filmmaker. He's also a friend of mine, um, and he's he's a master of craft. 
uh, I, I referred to him as a Jedi master on set. And, and he, he even, he directs like a Jedi master. He just, he knows everything. And, and that's what he brought to the show is literally everything. It was incredible having him there uh, and uh, having his wisdom and his great taste. And for me, because I, I also direct, I directed the last two episodes to be sort of attached at the hip for four months with one of the greatest of all time. I can't tell you how much I learned about directing. So it was just the, this greatest film school I could possibly ask for. Danny, thank you so much for your time with me here and for the show. Um, it's going to be very important for Thank you many so much. Uh, I loved uh, chatting with you about it. Thank you so much to Danny Strong. Dopesick premieres on Disney Plus on November 12th. And thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe to Pop Culture Confidential wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Hello, and welcome to Guilty Greeny. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but you know. Say, we're talking uh, about sustainability, maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the guilty green. There's your first challenge of the week. <laughs> Avoid elephants. Elephant. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. It's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. Yeah, tag. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green.